My name is Ken Aksho. I'm the president and founder of the Caribbean Risk Management Institute. I decided to do a podcast called Risk Unfiltered. Risk matters to all of us and, and Risk Management 101 teaches us that it must start with us, the individual first. So uh, the podcast speaks to folks like your good self, for we are all exposed to some level of risks. And we have pretty good fun. I taped the uh, first podcast with Dr. Kirk Douglas, um, the head of the biosecurity department at the University of West Indies at Keyville. Um, very interesting conversation. Um, and you would see that in, in a few moments. It's interesting that um, we are having this conversation. It's, it's, it's actually very timely, uh, not just because of COVID and the interest around um, pathogens and pandemics, but um, you sent me a document and a um, couple, couple weeks ago, and I was going through it, and I have a, um, a bunch of questions, which is so germane to the conversation we're going to have, which is the convergence of risk management and, um, and, um, and biosecurity. And I actually learned um, a term called um, affective skills. So affective skills is behavior and attitude that students learn to be effective in, the personal, in their personal and professional lives. Who would have thought that? Who would have thunk? Kirk, did you know about that? Uh, no. <laughs> well, it's in the document that you would have sent me weeks ago. Hi, Kelly. Okay. Oh, it's um, new to me too, huh? I, I didn't yeah, know that. Before. Yeah, it, listen, so, so um, Kirk, why don't, Hi. So, um, Kirk, why don't I start by doing the following? So, I'm going to ask you a few questions based on um, what I know we know of biosecurity. The, the theme here is the convergence. I mean, the, the, what role does effective risk management, risk assessment play, should play, or to play? Um, and where do you see that convergence going forward in your space and at, at Cave Hill? Yeah? yeah. Okay. Uh, how, how, how can we best integrate, align um, the two disciplines, right? Um, and given what I would have read, it's, it's actually very inextricably linked um, if we didn't know that before. So. Let me just read something to you and then you give me your feedback. Um, and it speaks to the convergence topic. It goes like this, and I'm reading from um, Mr. D Dr. Douglas, the guest editorial document, biosecurity spaces, practices, and boundaries. Yeah? So the paragraph goes like this. Instead of more mastery through greater awareness, risk, society signals a world where we become conscious that unconsciousness does not mean full control. Bruno Latour radicalizes back by emphasizing social and material complexity, underlining the sense that there can be no true security, that risk is not simply more awareness, but that taking action to reduce risk is part and parcel of social 
and material generation of risks. You concur? Yes, to some extent. Um, and I'll explain. The, no. Okay, the, the point that was made in terms of awareness. Mm -hmm. um, deal with management, I think I, I would definitely take that point. Um, even though I think awareness is a critical part of it, um, but it's not the end all and be all of it. Um, with respect to biosecurity, our outlook, our perspective of biosecurity um, is, in our opinion, slightly different from the traditional um, perspective, whereas persons usually associate biosecurity with hazmat suits, um, biological warfare, um, you know, conjuring up those types of images. We have gone back to the root of the word biosecurity. So we've looked at the prefix and the suffix, and we've taken bios, which means one life, and securus, which is the root Latin word for security, and that means to make, um, to reduce or remove anxiety, and basically to make, make one uh, feel safe. So we, we then tried to see if we could come up with a definition that would encapsulate that and also bearing in mind the context within the Caribbean. Um, within the lecture, I would have explained why, why that is important. Um, because within the Caribbean, we have a unique set of vulnerabilities. We have hurricanes, severe weather systems. We have you know, African um, Sahara dust. We have earthquakes. We have volcanoes. We have... Um, rising sea levels, we have climate change, we have so many things converging all together within this small area. And then we have layered on top of that, the issue of um, the biodiversity decline in the Caribbean and also in Latin America. There was a 2020 report uh, compiled by the WWF, the Worldwide um, Wildlife Fund, and that study uh, revealed that between 1970 and 2016, that the population, uh, population, wildlife populations in the Caribbean and Latin America have declined by 94% compared to the rest of the world. So we are almost triple um, some of the uh, other areas with our regions within um, the, the global sphere. So we have a number of layer complexities within the Caribbean. So the traditional view of biosecurity is not necessarily going to work. Um, so what we did, we've defined biosecurity as the science and practice of um, safeguarding lives and livelihoods. And how do we do this? And this is through the reduction of systematic vulnerabilities uh, to, eco, um, to biological ecosystems. So anything that affects biological ecosystems and threatens lives and livelihoods, that comes under the banner of biosecurity. So that gives us the umbrella um, within to capture whatever um, issues we, we, we would be facing in the Caribbean. Then we took it a step further because that is very broad. And what we would need then is some mechanism 
in order to start somewhere. Um, and we have to have a formal way of doing it and not a haphazard way. So we actually devise and design an analytical tool, which we call PESHEAL. And this is a tool that we've used um, to scan the environment. We know it's not going to be uh, perfect, but we don't expect perfection because we are now starting and we now are looking at these uh, particular issues. But what it does and one advantage it gives is that it allows you to look at many different spheres and disciplines. And so it drives a multidisciplinarity in terms of your perspective of the issues that you're looking at. And the PEST HEAL acronym um, stands for Political, Economic, Social, Technical, Health. And this could be animal, human, and plant. Then there's environmental. Then there's ethical. And then there's legal. So all of those dimensions we actually examine and take a look at and see how we can then craft um, comprehensive and suitable solutions to tackle the issues. So with respect to the question you had asked in terms of risk management, what we are doing is trying to reduce vulnerabilities. And we have to look at the worst that are posed um, by these particular threats um, from within the region, whether they be um, due to climate change, whether it be you know, infectious diseases, whether it be um, human trafficking um, or you know, narco trafficking or something that's happening in, in any, any area. But we've had to, within our limited resources and our limited scope in terms of what we can, we know that we can achieve we have then had to define three focal areas with, with which we will operate within those boundaries um, so that we don't extend ourselves too much because you can take on too much and then you can lose your effectiveness and also your impact. Um, with respect to the risk management, we think this is important and action needs to happen. And yes, risk assessments are definitely um, desirable. You need to collect data. You need to have an informed view of what the risk potential um, that exists. And then you have to craft ways of mitigating against those risks. And some before they happen and some, you know, because they're already happening, then you have to try to figure out how can you reduce their impact. So that's where I think the um, convergence of risk management and uh, biosecurity um, comes. Meets. Okay, so so a couple of things. Um, so how are you now? Well, when I say you, I mean the, the department and, and KVIL. Um, how are you now identifying your risks? How what are you? Is there a methodology, a framework, or is it, you know, you guys get together and you do some brainstorming, or is it just based on historical data? You know, it has happened, so we know it's going to happen again. I, I mean, how... How do you then identify, how do you come up with risks? And, and what exactly, how do you define risks in the biosecurity space? Well, I know that, that's pretty, um, you know, front-loaded questions, but let's see if you can build a framework to help you move forward. Okay, with respect to risk, um, these would be things that we, 
will have observed, whether it be in global or regional space, that are um, have tremendous impact on lives, human life, um, animal life, or uh, plant life, and also livelihoods. Um, then we look to see if those particular issues are present in the Caribbean. With respect to UWI, in terms of, do you mean the organization? If we do adopt a risk-based approach to, you know, in terms of education, because that's a slightly different- well, I mean, specific, No, specific about your department, biosecurity. So everything we're talking about now is about biosecurity. Yeah? Um, so when I say you and, and, and it's you and your department and, and your team, right? And, and the risks to, um, to your objectives, whatever those objectives may be in the biosecurity space. And you alluded to that a little earlier, but let me, let me get very specific. Um, and this jumped at me uh, this morning, I'll say about four o'clock this morning. And I framed the question like this, given how COVID has significantly disrupted economies, livelihoods, but 400,000 plus lives in the US here alone. Should biosecurity be deemed a more immediate existential threat than say global warming? And, 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 and before you answer that, in that material you sent me, there was a reference to, there was a comment that went like this. Unlike the COVID pandemic, the deleterious public health and economic impacts of global warming are not as immediate as say this so so why is it not then your team and the world wildlife and all of the other bodies pushing that greater existential threat given COVID, and should they well well i think i think again there, there, there is a disconnect and people fail to to understand the interrelatedness so for instance Sorry, the COVID-19 is a symptom, right? So it's almost like you, you, you have a cough. That's the cough is COVID-19. But what is the true root cause of it? Is it only wildlife? Perhaps not. That relationship between humans and wildlife, we have to fix. That is abundantly clear. Right, and that is one lesson that we have to learn, and we have to learn quickly, or else, unfortunately, this will not be the last pandemic that we will perhaps even see in our lifetime, and it will probably be of a greater severity, um, because in my view, COVID nineteen is quite—I wouldn't want to say mild, but it could be a whole lot worse. When you look at Ebola, and you look at Marburg and a lot of the other viral hemorrhagic fevers, the course of illness, it is, I, I don't even know the magnitude, but magnitude's worse than COVID-19. But it is the mode of transmission that makes COVID-19 as um, deleterious in terms of its impact on human society right now the ability to tr be transferred by respiratory, um, the respiratory route from human to human. Within the Americas, there are those viral hemorrhagic fever viruses. They, it, there's one particular um, arena virus that is able to be trans, oh, sorry, hantavirus, that is able to be transmitted human to human. 
and is uh, found in Chile in, in mice. And uh, there was an uh, outbreak recently, I think a year or two ago, and there was a big cluster, a larger cluster than they've ever seen before. So this is something that is brewing and it lends the question in terms of how humans are managing their environment. So when we deforest and the uh, Amazon rainforest is the largest rainforest in the world and is considered in the climate change conversation as the lungs of the world. So we are depleting that. So you have multiple things occurring at the same time. You have humans logging, mining, damaging the environment, displacing wildlife, encroaching on, on the um, habitat of wildlife and exposing themselves. They're also um, farming. So more people are now coming into that environment and also being exposed. And so you have the convergence of multiple things occurring at the same time. But so, but so when, Doc, is that, is that happening at a fast, in your expert opinion, and it goes to the question, is, is that happening at a faster rate at glo uh, um, uh, than global warming? And, the, thing is, the thing is that they're both connected. Excuse me. So there's there's something called um, emerging risks, um, deliberately emerging risks, um, and these these are defined terms. So de a deliberately emerging risk is things that we are doing unto ourselves, like logging and and um, and taking away the habitat of, of 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 wild animals. Okay. That being said. Climate change, given my little research, is, is not as impactful by way of death count than a pandemic. Okay. So, why, so, so why is the, a pandemic risk not more existential than climate change? If, if, or should it be, I guess is the question I'm asking. Well, well the thing is pandemics and infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. they are faster moving and the impact is, is much greater. And I, I've had conversations with persons who are chronic disease researchers and they all say, you know, um, and this was before the pandemic, uh, we don't really need to fund infectious diseases. You know, we never, yeah. we haven't had a pandemic in, in, in quite some time. So their, their concept is, you know, we have a real problem with chronic disease, which is a slow moving pandemic really and truly in the Caribbean and also for uh, persons of African descent in, in North America. But the, the critical point that I think needs to be pressed home is that I don't see one as greater than the other. And that is the fundamental flaw, a lot in terms of the funding, in terms of the research, in terms of even the treaties. We, we have a siloed way of approaching these problems but we fail to understand the interconnectedness of it. So Great. what you're going to achieve with climate change can also help you with the emergence of pandemics, but you have to see the link, you have to see the importance or not right. what you do, you will come over here with blinders and you will just focus on climate change. And say, I don't worry about what, what, what people are doing, I have to do this, but you're not saying, okay, we can hold hands together and say, you know what, this risk is actually linked to this risk. And so if I don't help you or you don't help me, right. the risk are not going to be reduced. So, 
So let me agree and disagree with you a little bit. And I, I love the word interconnectivity, right? Interconnectivity. So, so let's bring risk management or the value of a deep dive into your space. You cannot manage risk in silos. Totally agree. Yes. So you must look at climate change and, and the, um, um, the pandemics and, and wildlife and the transference of, of diseases, the jump. Okay. You need to look at all of that. But in the risk space, we talk about the hierarchy of risks or a, a business impact analysis or an impact analysis. So, so, so and, and, and as you alluded to, there are, you, know, you, you may not have enough resources to throw behind all of them equally. Yes? Okay. So, in, in, in so what is the, so, so it, when it comes to risk management, we talk about financial injurious reputational impact. Top three. Yeah, and in, injurious in this case is death. So if it is that you have uh, various risk all eventuating at the same time because the ice caps are melting, folks are, um, you know, humans are moving into to, to, um, spaces where wildlife once um, was predominant. Yeah, so all of those things are happening simultaneously. Yes, you need to look at it, but by way of an impact analysis, where is the greatest impact being felt now? And greatest impact is by death. So the ice caps are melting, snow caps are melting, fossil fuels are uh, thinking, but the last count, last piece of research I looked at, they said by, if by 2030 certain things aren't done, then all hell breaks loose, yeah? But you have two point something million people that have, that have died thus far because of this coronavirus. So let me just finish this point. So, so, so global warming may have contributed to what we are facing now. Yeah. But I go back to the question then. So maybe in reframing the existential threat, not just as global warming, because in my respectful view, when, if you do an impact analysis, global warming, as a contributor to, to the two point something million lives there, greater, more specific than that is the fact that you have biosecurity that's probably not as funded or as much attention being paid specifically to that element than say the melting of the ice caps. And, I, and if I'm, and, and so from a risk management perspective, that, that's how I am viewing it. So you have the floor. Okay. First, I would say that climate change is more than just the melting of, of ice caps. And um, there, there's heat waves there. And I'll give you one statistic because this pre precedes our next initiative that we will launch in the summer. And this is on air pollution um, in the Caribbean. So we are going to launch a clean air um, initiative for the Caribbean. The WHO, they have released a statistic that shows that 7 million people die every year right. because of pollution. Right. So when you put that up next to COVID-19. Thus far. Thus far. Thus far, right? But that happens every year. Okay. <laughs> every okay. year. So, okay. so that is why I want people to understand that it is not that this is bigger than this or this is bigger than that because they all threaten lives. They all threaten livelihoods. So if we try this piecemeal, 
this is bigger than that and they have to do that. You can't do everything all at once. That's a, that is guaranteed. And, 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 and for instance, if you were running a business, you would look for the thing where you're leaking money the most and try to fix that, right? But sometimes if you do that, what you recognize is that if you try to focus only on that problem, then the other problems get worse. And yeah. in trying to fix that problem, now you've taken your eyes off of those and then you run yourself into, into problems. So perhaps the better way of approaching it would be then to see how can we do an integrated approach looking at the impacts of all of them combined and what is the most suitable and most comprehensive approach that will give us the best bang for our buck rather than saying, okay, this is now the biggest problem and we have to tell all, you know, throw all the money behind this, but then we leave gaping holes. And once you've quote unquote wrestled that to the ground, now you have, you know, a million skyscrapers now to, to try to climb. So, so, so do you know that, um, and, and Natasha and I were talking about this in, in passing, you ever heard of, and it's a medical term, risk homeostasis? I know homeostasis and I could, I could um, perhaps. No, 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 we're putting the two together, risk homeostasis, don't dissect the stuff. Risk homeostasis. What I'm saying is, is that I don't know <laughs> the actual term, but by wow. hearing two terms, I can kind of guess. Okay. Know, Take a guess at what, what do you think the relevance is? Um, well, what well, is is having everything within balance. Um, right. Having your body or, you know, having an environment in, in homeostasis or even a chemical reaction. So it is everything within balance and having your risk balance. Right. So, right. So, but, but, but in the risk space, when we talk about risk homeostasis, it's, it's similar to the analogy you just raised there with, you know, you can't be doing this and forget that. And so it, it speaks to putting a control to mitigate one risk for the most part, and that control becomes a risk unto itself, right? Or, or you take more risk because of the control. And a good analogy will be, you know, you go and you change your brakes in your vehicle, and because you have new brakes, you think, no, I could drive faster, right? So you have like, right. So, so that, that said, let me let me let me ask you another question, and it speaks to the governments of the Caribbean um, islands. Most of the the government um, in in of the day currently are looking at business continuity and disaster preparedness from a legislative standpoint. Um, a good example would be uh, Bahamas has a ministry a ministry of disaster preparedness. But in their heads, and, and again, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for feedback from you. In their minds, and rightly so, business continuity or disaster preparedness was always around hurricanes or earthquakes, something infrastructural. Do you believe that in, in, in building legislation around business continuity or disaster preparedness, that there needs to be some focus on biosecurity as well, given what we are, we are experiencing now? Yeah, I think I think so. Um, and one article that we have currently in uh, press for publication speaks to that in terms of having pandemic insurance. Um, right. This isn't a, con a concept that is even too foreign because when you look, for instance, at um, bird flu and the impact of bird flu around the world when it was, I think, in 2005, between 2005 and 2007, what had happened 
um, at that point in time is that a number of farmers took out insurance against um, the eventuality or the risk of you know, their flocks contracting H5N1 and having to depopulate all of their flocks. And that happened for some of them, um, I think even in the UK. And you had to have mass burials of the flocks. So you had to dig large pits and burn them and, and cover them. So the idea of having insurance against infectious disease outbreaks or pandemics is not unprecedented. However, when it is at the magnitude as it is for COVID-19, the question is, is how are you going to upset that risk as an uh, insurance um, body or, or organization? You would perhaps prefer to have done it beforehand, right. built the, the, the mass of, of finances, and then you know, in the eventuality that that occurs, then um, you, you would have to make your payouts. But that is something that I think will evolve over time in terms of the risk product that insurance companies may offer um, in terms of business continuity. Right. Um, taking out insurance also on the lives of um, you know, the C-suite um, employees that they may even have, because these are critical members to the function name right. of businesses. So um, it, it is in the conversation. And I think over time, you'll start to see it emerge because, I mean, it is a risk that no people actually recognize pandemics are not a fairy tale. Yeah, but, but you know, Doc, um, the, the overtime approach, knowing some of these decision makers, as I, I think I do, um, a risk has already eventuated, right? So I don't know how many lives would have been lost in Barbados. So this, this, this coronavirus is here. And to your point, it, it's, it's not going to be the, it's not the first and nor will it be the last. And so in its very construct disaster preparedness is preparing for disaster. It could be one year from now, two years from now. So I want to respectfully submit as part of this conversation, and I don't know where um, the biodiversity um, department is with this, um, is that you know how strong your advocacy is for some of these things we are talking about. And, and knowing you, I think you're a strong advocate for, for future proofing uh, the Caribbean and I dare say outside of the Caribbean as well. But if these, if you can't think it, you can't act on it. And these guys aren't thinking or asking the questions you and I are talking about. So, um, and, I, I, and I'm not um, as in tune or as aware of, of how you are advocating up the government line to get some of these things done. And so you and I would have spoken about the problem with the reinsurance companies um, globally where there's an impact um, um, to, to, they spend so much money on pandemic and storms and stuff, and they are saying that there may not be enough to go around if these things continue to happen. So, so, so again, you, you can't fight all of the battles, but you need to put, you need to, there needs to be controls in place for not if, but when these risks do eventuate. And, and, and what I've seen, observed, and researched folks aren't doing the things you and I are talking about as robustly as they ought to be doing it. And when I say they, I mean uh, the governments and the, the institutions. Um, Natasha, you guys want to jump in with a question? I, I don't want to hug all Dr. Douglas's uh, time, you know, because I can do this for the next five hours. 
Um, you know, you're talking and I'm thinking about when we used to speak in the early days about, you know, essentially what you are, both you, uh, Dr. Douglas and Ken, you're, you're a voice in the wilderness. You are foreseeing sure. what's coming and yeah. um, basically trying to get everybody on board and trying to get the leaders and the decision makers to um, act in a way that will be proactive and anticipatory. But right. um, at the same time, you know, as you've said, Ken, if you cannot imagine it, yeah. um, you really, you're not interested in acting on it. And people who are in positions of power tend to have a little hubris themselves. So mm -hmm. it is a thankless and really difficult and challenging task, coronavirus or not. I mean, we know what's happening in the world right now. I mean, you just have to look up north where you are, Ken, and see how decision makers, even in the midst of unprecedented daily deaths, are mm -hmm. twiddling their thumbs and denying what is in front of them. Yeah. So yeah. we could talk yeah. till thy kingdom come. Um, but if they choose to ignore, or it's convenient for them, or it um, destabilizes their power structure. It's in their interest to say, well, no, I'm not seeing it. See no evil, hear no evil, etc." So, yes, go ahead. Natasha, but you, you just um, put your finger on the pulse of something that is at the heart and the root, I believe, of it all, even this COVID-19 pandemic. And for me, that is, um, that is human behavior and how you can modify human behavior. Because with someone who has hubris, in order to get through to them, you have to be able to change their behavior. Their behavior is set in a certain way or a certain you know, trend. But if we are to be effective, then you have to be able to change that directive. And I'll give you an example that I, I know the challenges of it and I do, concur with you in terms of being a voice in the wilderness. When um, we had, when I was doing the study in um, migratory birds here in, in Barbados, there was a lot of pushback. Um, as a master's student, you don't have much leverage, you know, as a university student, and you're telling, you know, the veterinary, chief veterinary officers, oh, yeah, this thing is coming. Oh, no, that's, that will never get here. That risk is not, is not being, you're invited to a regional meeting and they try to veto that because who are you, you know? Um, but then you manage to push, given all of that, you know, you keep on your focus, you keep and you hammer, you hammer, you hammer. And thankfully you do get a breakthrough. You do actually isolate the virus, connect with the USDA and they come, okay, so can we have your, the results of your study, please? And you're like, really? I thought yeah. this was not gonna ever happen. <laughs> you know, and then you recognize that unless you can show definitively and not only show definitively, but also um, collaborate with people who have impact and that their respect, then you do not necessarily get as much mileage. But once I had connected with the USDA and, mm. they had, and we were publishing and we published that paper in a top journal, um, then they were asking me for the actual journal so that they can have a copy of it. But a lot of it is a lot of political um, machinations that goes on. And I, again, it still comes down to human behavior. So let's bring risk management into that. So, so Kirk, 
when 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 we talk about the convergence, so when you mentioned um, attitudes, behavior, that is that is a, a, um, an element of risk management we call risk culture, right? Which is defined as the sum total of one's attitudes and behaviors, and and the two of them put together equals the culture of an organization. So I want to respectfully submit to you that the following in doing um, risk assessments, risk identification in the biosecurity space. Um, a category of risk ought to be people risks, right? Both within your organization and externally. And, and people risk, one of the elements of that is culture, risk culture, attitudes, behaviors. And it kind of goes back to that term I found in the paper you sent me, affective skills behavior and attitudes of, of people around their personal and professional space. Now, there's also into, there's also something we call accepted risks. So in doing a, a full-blown risk assessment within, um, say, your department or in the biosecurity space, there will be risks that you will have to accept because you will have no control over it, right? But that then needs to be documented. And one of them could be political risks. One of them could be people risk or the attitude and behaviors of, of, of others because you'll never be able to convert all to, to Natasha's point. You know, two point something million, 200 something thousand people would have died. And I'm looking at the news and there's a, a store owner in Naples, Texas, one of the richest communities in Florida, that folks aren't wearing masks. The cashiers, the attend, they aren't wearing masks. Yeah. So, I, so unless it's legislation, leg, le, there's legislation around it. Unless you you are forced to do it, some folks will not do it. Yeah, it but I get your point. Even yeah. even if you do legislate it, legislation is not a, a medical um, portion. That true. Because true. People break the law. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So there's always an element of you know residual risks, right? And so I'm using terminologies and concepts that that um as we would have discussed, that needs to be part of your, your um, lexicon around biosecurity because they all fall in place, yeah? Um, is, is, um, is Kelly there? Kelly? Yes, I am. Any questions? Also, Doc, I, I need to forewarn you. Uh, Kelly is a, a, a chemistry uh, kind of, um, well, other than the, the, the um, academic side of it, you know, um, she wants to pick your brains a little bit. Kelly, you have a, any questions for the uh, Honorable Doc? I have a comment rather, because I wanted to jump into that climate change versus um, what the Yeah, I wanted to jump into that debate because I think sure. the real root cause of it mm -hmm. is really um, mankind's indiscriminate use of natural resources. So I think both climate change as well as the issue of biodiversity loss they are both manifestations of the same risk driver. Mm -hmm. and, and therefore, by focusing on which one is more important than the other, you miss the opportunity to address that real root cause. Because, for instance, in Trinidad, we all know the wild meat parang season, right? And there's never really been public engagement with respect to what is the consequence of having a wild meat season, right? We, it's part of our culture. Mm -hmm. You know, it's part of a season that brings us joy, but missing in that conversation is the impact on our biodiversity. Uh, unless that link 
aid, you would find that people don't make that connection with that we are tapping into resources that we ought to leave well alone. Right. Yes, yeah, so I think that's an important part of the conversation. So yes, we may focus on those symptoms, which I think is climate change and biodiversity loss. But when mm -hmm. you keep going, why is that? Why is that? Why is that? Mm -hmm. Well, we are all utilizing resources at a faster rate than we ought to. Why is that? Because the population is constantly expanding, the world population. Not only is the world population expanding, but also the desires of each individual. Before, your wants would have been, you know, as a student, you know, whatever. But as you grow older, your wants now become expanded. And so um, it is really, to me, at the root of it is greed um, and hubris throughout the world that is driving a lot of this. And that's why I said, when Natasha uh, spoke, that she touched it to me as human behavior. Yeah. It, it, the mining, the logging, all of this is greed. They want more money and they're doing it at all costs. Even when they're building, um, you know, they're building these large hotels or resorts on the coastal areas. They're going to clear mangroves and mangroves do a tremendous job in terms of the ecosystem servicing, sequestering carbon. Um, but a lot of this is not going to be brought into the conversation and kind of the policies and the treaties that are signed are driving this change that is slow. And we would have seen New Zealand, for instance, making it mandatory for people who are doing um, any national development projects to also um, fund the climate risk of that particular project. And I think that is what you will see in order to access funding um, on the global stage, countries will now start to have to report in terms of the emissions um, for their countries. And so it is more or less going, people, the countries are going to be goaded into becoming more responsible fiscally, not because they really want to or they have a desire, but they, if they want to access funding, then you basically have to do it. Yeah. Um, can I just add something, Ken, if, if I may, before you go? Mm -hmm. um, I want to reinforce uh, something that Kellyanne referenced, which is the wild meat and parang season. Even while you were speaking earlier, Dr. Douglas, uh, as someone who considers myself a reader and a learner, it is sometimes actually really difficult to connect and to bring home some of these concepts. Um, but you see that story about wild meat and parang, immediately I see how it impacts me. And I think one of the things that we all need to do better is tell stories and relatable stories. So when Kellyanne spoke about wild meat and parang, I could immediately feel and know, okay, that's what, this is what it will mean for me. No more curry um, iguana, no more, or maybe less rather than no more or, or so on. Um, we need in telling our stories to remember who our audience is and not think that the story will have the impact just because just facts and figures but i mean it's obvious i mean look at this four hundred thousand people dead but mm. it's hard for average jews and ourselves included to really 
understand and internalize what that means to the point where it can help us to change our behavior because we're going to after behavior change. So that's one. I think we need to start not just using the facts and figures, but making our communication and advocacy that much stronger by using relatable stories like parang and wild meat. So that's one. The other thing is a pushback, Dr. Douglas, on something that you said about, well, it's not a pushback so much as um, a, a new perspective, maybe. Yes, a lot of this is caused by greed, but um, part of it is also, I think, caused by a growing inequality. So you have, on the one hand, people who have way more than they will need in 10 lifetimes, need being relative, of course. Um, but then on the other hand, so this is a small group of people and a shrinking small group of people who have more than they need. And then you have a growing uh, section of the global population who have less than they need to survive, not just because, not want, but to survive. You have growing levels of poverty throughout the world and in order to survive, people end up doing things like logging. So it's not just greed. You have people who are just trying to survive. I mean, when you think of the migration crisis and what's happening in Venezuela, there's an argument about whether or not these are economic immigrants versus people who are just trying to survive and feed their kids and you know deal with their health situations. Which is it? It actually could be both. So how do we deal with it from a risk perspective? Yeah, and, and, and you know what, to, to piggyback on, on Natasha and Kelly's point. So, and I, let me personalize it. So if I'm lecturing or trying to convert someone, sometimes you need to talk to them like they're a six-year-old, especially when it comes to the risk management space. So it, it needs to be relatable, but also palatable. And, the, or, and in the essence of full disclosure, I don't eat any wild meat. I don't eat anything that's run faster than I do. So no iguanas or deers, I'm sorry. Um, so yeah, um, so, 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 so Kirk, I, I think, and, and with reference to relatable and palatable, very few people, and I didn't make the connection until I started doing research. So when folks hearing about the existential threat of global warming, unless you are in the space, I, I will bet you, and Kirk, you look like a very independently wealthy um, young man. So I can't, I can't match my salary to yours. Maybe Kelly's, Kelly's to yours. But um, I don't think too many folks, especially in Trinidad and Tobago, and, and at, let's say at the decision-making level, could connect the dots between biodiversity or wild meat or, or the jump from, um, of diseases from, from animals to humans and global warming. Folks aren't making that connection because I certainly didn't until I started doing a deep dive. Yeah, and, and so and so and so to, to the point that that we are making and again bringing in the risk management space. Risk communication is critical. Oh, by the way, these are all um, Kirk modules within our ERM. Hey, what are you doing tomorrow, Kirk? You have like a 15, 20 minutes tomorrow. We have a class. Um, well, it starts this evening but I would like to invite you to come and share some thoughts um, on these same things we're talking about with the, uh, with the students tomorrow. It's, it's at, well, it's, it's at um, Lovejack 
global school, but it's, everything is online. So think about it. Any time between nine and three, if you have 15, 20 minutes um, to share certain perspectives uh, around this topic we, 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 are, we are talking about. But Natasha's point, um, yeah. I think she, again, and you're quite right in terms of it is not always about wealth because you mentioned, for instance, those migrants from Venezuela. But my question would be, why are they coming over? And what is the root cause behind that? And for me, it is is the greed of, of Maduro and and um, all the, the people who try to invest in terms of extracting the, the petrochemicals from, and that's the real decline um, of, of Venezuela. And that then, that fallout led to the situation where those persons now have to fight for survival. So not saying that everyone who is in it has greed, but when you look carefully behind the scenes, you will see that the fallout from the situations that are caused is really is really um, a greed that's really behind it. And you have persons who are unscrupulous, um, who you know they have a different. They're criminals. Let's put it you know yeah. talk a lot yeah. more criminals. And so some criminals are very smart, but you know, it has an impact. And so in order to change that, um, I do agree with you in terms of communication. And yeah. that is critical. And communication yeah. is not just, you know, saying it and speaking it out the correct way, but it's the actual person on the receiving end, receiving it and fully understanding and comprehending. So you have raised a very critical issue because I think even with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic approach, that is something that is also missing. And it was missing with the Barbados response because you had communication, well, not communication, you had press conferences, but these were press conferences, but what you really needed was a conversation and you needed uh, public health messaging. And for me, I think that a lot of uh, lessons could be learned from the HIV pandemic and the way how we had to evolve in terms of risk communication yeah. and also communication and that helped to raise awareness at all levels of society on what this to grapple with what the problem was but i think that covid 19 has to now go through that evolution you will see people using culture um, in terms of using humor um, even songs you know that will convey the message in a way that's palatable for one and all and that they could even share with their friends and they can have a laugh and discuss about it even. And, you know, that to me then shows that you are actually reaching to the, because one person who doesn't get it is, is a danger. And so it can't be, okay, well, I'm just doing this because the WHO is saying it. I really need to know my people. I need to know my culture and I need to then communicate using those avenues effectively to people. And that's something that we are aware of and, one thing I've spoken with our um, our group about is looking to develop a communication uh, plan um, because one two of our main objectives are one to raise the visibility of the center and two to raise the level of awareness locally and also extra regionally and yeah. so that <laughs> that communication plan is going to be very important. So that people understand who you are and what you do and what you do what you do and um, we are going to develop that 
we have a marketing and communications um, arm at the university, but we also recognize that, you know, you have to use different methods of, um, you know, bringing visibility and raising that level of awareness. So that is something that's going to be critical. Yeah, so Doc, and, and, and so uh, let me suggest, and, and the academy could be one of the tools that you can use for this, vis-a-vis uh, -vis even what we're doing now. But, but again, I, I, I think, and you used the term interconnectedness earlier on. So that interconnectivity needs to be spoken to. And, and, and maybe um, Kelly's point about, what is it? Um, Parang and what? Um, and and Wiley. But again, <laughs> relatable and, and palatable and, and connecting the dots. Because again, I go back to that global warming and, and, and zootonic and, and transference of disease from you. They're, they're all interconnected. But unless you, you know, you and your team makes that point. So I don't think, and it's, it's sort of like what you were saying earlier, you, you can't speak to it in isolation. So you can't speak about diet, biodiversity without speaking about that. So you have to connect those dots, right? Um, the other thing, um, one last thing I want to mention is, um, is, is um, not just about getting out the message, but who, who, because unless you get someone who fully understands conceptually, philosophically, what we're talking about, you can't hand this off to someone who just because there's no communications. Yeah. Um, so they have to speak from the inside out. Right. And unfortunately that beholds folks like us. So when I, when we are speaking of, of the, you know, whether it's integrating ERM or ERM in the global space, um, that's why, you know, individuals like Natasha and, and, and Kelly uh, will join me in, in advocating for these things, but communication is key. And, and you also need to speak respectfully on the ROI to what you're doing. And sometimes the return on investment is not just, not just, obviously it's not, it's, it's not monetary. But if you don't do this, then you'll you'll die, right? And again, it wouldn't reach everybody, but it's not just um, what you communicate, but how we communicate and who does that communication. So one of one of the one of the methodologies or the concepts in risk, obviously, is risk communication, right? Gentlemen, um, if I may interject, we're now yeah. at an hour. I know you know when we get started, it's it's really yeah, yeah, yeah. it's so, easy so to go on and on. I, I, I think we've had a great conversation, but um, I know we would need to wrap to up. To do this again. So yes, that, absolutely. Thank you for taking the time. Go ahead. You want to say something? Yeah, I'll just come to Kelly's point. Um, we are actually doing a well meat study in Trinidad and Tobago and also in Jamaica. We are planning to roll that out either this month or next month. So yeah. that will be rather interesting. Um, I know I mean, they'll, that- They'll eat wild meat, so they'll, they'll participate. Yeah. Well, yeah. But, but we, we do recognize that it's a cultural phenomenon, um, not only in Trinidad and Tobago, but a, a lot of other Caribbean countries, not very much so here in Barbados, but definitely um, in Grenada, St. Vincent, Dominica, even Jamaica, because that's one of the pilot sites that we're doing it. We're doing Jamaica and also um, Trinidad and Tobago. But I know that the hunters are, how should I say, cautious because they think that uh, we want to shut them down, but that is not the case. All we want to do really is to understand the risk that, are, that they actually- What's that word again? 
Yes. Yeah. 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 The risk that they, they encounter when they go into the forest. Because yeah. the risk is not in the actual curry that you curry armadillo oh, yeah. or tattoo or um, lap that you eat. It is really when you are in the forest hunting, the aerosols, the urine, the feces that you can be um, exposed to or even your dog. Um, then in terms of butchering the meat, that contact with blood, that is where the higher risk are. And so yeah. we want to engage them and not, not to, because as you mentioned, this is something that everybody looks forward to in Trinidad and Tobago every Christmas, because that is the season that, you know, people, you know, that's what they do. Good luck, um, good luck with them with that one, yeah. I'm I want to try. introduce you to the concept of homegrown wild meat tour. So. Yes, yes, we, we, we actually, so I'll invite you guys to come. We have, sure. three more, we have three more events planned for this month. The first mm -hmm. one will be examining illegal wildlife trade and also money laundering. Um, so yeah. Kelly, this will be right up your street and the impact yeah. of the illegal wildlife trade on money laundering. We have the head of ACAMS. Um, you you be familiar with ACAMS, which is the Anti-Money Laundering uh, Certification Organization. The director for the Americas, uh, William um, Rob, he will be one of the panelists. And so they'll be discussing that. The second one is with Well Meat. And um, that will be really interesting. We have Michelle Singh from Cardi. She is a Trinidadian and she was very much involved in the uh, growing well meat, um, like well meat farming, um, that initiative in Trinidad and Tobago. So that should also be interesting. And then okay. finally, on the 25th, we have uh, One Health land, land use changes and, um, and Caribbean wildlife. So the impact of our activities, human activities on, on wildlife. We're trying to see if we can get the chief town planner from, from Jamaica. Uh, we have a, a environmental um, coordinator from NEPA, which is the National um, Environmental Protection Agency in Jamaica. So he will be on the panel, but we are waiting to see if we can also get a town plan so we can discuss issues of, you know, um, our urban and rural development and their impact on, on wildlife and biodiversity. But yeah, I think that you guys will be, will be um, yeah. Yeah, for them, probably from a usage standpoint. Um, so, Dr. Dr. Douglas, I want to thank you for taking the time uh, to meet with us. This is, um, we actually, um, this might be a nice little segue for us to have a conversation around uh, um, a, um, a certificate in, in health risk management that we have developed. But we'll do a sidebar and then probably bring you back to talk through that as well. That will be offered through the academy. We have three courses that attending approval, short professional courses that the center is going to be offering as well here. Um, they should be, I'm hoping, uh, sometime in either April or early, late March or early April, I'm hoping that they will be, a bit, we will get approval and then mm. we can actually administer, um, administer them. Okay, good. I hope risk management is part of, uh, risk assessment is part of the- Risk management is going to be a big part of the, the Very first course. Of it is by security more than meets the eye. Um, okay, and I will look at risk management whereby security is. Concerned. So, Doc, I want to thank you. It's always a pleasure. Um, Kelly, I want to thank you for taking the time from a busy schedule. Natasha, thank you as well. No problem. Uh, we'll do this. Yeah, we'll do this again. I really soon. enjoy the conversation, guys. Yes. Okay, Doc. Yeah, really the conversation as well. So, thank you again for inviting me, Ken. And, Anytime. Uh,
You guys have a wonderful weekend. Okay, do the same. I would like you to stay tuned for more podcasts coming up. It's, it's meant to inform, educate, uh, and to help you plan and identify what risks matters to you. Whether you are running a, uh, a kiosk, uh, a grocery store, a conglomerate, uh, hair salon, or a, a major entertainer or an upcoming entertainer. So I want you to stay tuned for some of these uh, podcasts, or all of them, but I look forward to engaging you guys. So join us and stay tuned. Thank you much.